Hello and welcome to Deathside Talks with Mark here at The Thoughtful Gamer. This is what I'm going to be doing at least periodically on the off weeks for the podcast. As you may know, the main podcast runs uh, bi-weekly every other week on the other weeks uh, because I want to release a, some sort of podcast content once a week. I did count down before my top 50 games and now we're done with that. So I figured I'd just sit here at my computer and chat about the world of board games and what I've been playing recently. Just something really casual. Uh, nothing uh, too fancy here. Uh, I'm still playing near and far. Uh, we talked about that on a previous podcast, but I did play a few more games since then. If you were listening to that podcast, you noted that Matt made an argument that more games should have campaign modes in their games, or at least story, some kind of story campaign uh, system within it, because he thought it would only be a positive the game we played immediately after that podcast, or maybe the next day, he had a 180-degree switch in his position because something happened in his campaign, his character campaign on Yarn Far, with one of the story bits that completely, that it made him quite angry. Even though I think it was, it was okay, it wasn't ideal for the story, but he got, he got quite mad. I'll talk about that more in the review, but I don't, I didn't want to spoil anything. Uh, but I've played a few more games of Near Far since then, doing the... We did the complete character campaign, which is about five games. And now I'm partially through the main campaign, which is 11 games. I don't know if I'm going to finish that completely before the review, because I want to get the review out within the next couple of weeks, and I have a bunch of games incoming and doing all sorts of things. So... I'm hoping to finish the, the other campaign before I get my review out, but I think by this point, I played it a few times at every player count, and I think I have a pretty good feel of, of what I think of the game. Uh, to spoil a little bit, I think it's probably a hair better than Above and Below, but not substantially. It has its own issues that Above and Below doesn't have, most notably the length. Our four-player games were stretching out you know, two and a half hours and, you know, above and below maybe gets out to an hour, hour and a half. Even at four players, it moves a lot more quickly. Near and far, it's a slower game, but it's not necessarily that much more game. Like if you want a bigger, if you, if you want a longer game, you have to have it be more meaty. And I don't know if near and far quite justifies its length. On the other hand, it's substantially faster with two players. Ben and I were doing a two-player uh, campaign, and we were finishing games in under an hour. So it's one of those games where the time that you play it is linearly correlated with the number of players. So it's probably close to 30 minutes per player. But it does seem to extend even longer even longer than that because so we had games that almost went to three hours with four players and granted we you know we had some players who go a bit slower but there's more story reading per player there's or when you have more players there's a lot more to consider so it's harder to make good decisions with more players i don't know what i think about that i don't know if that's good or bad for the game I like the two-player game a lot because it moves so quickly, but on the other hand, it seems like 
in the two-player game, there's a bit more of a first-player advantage because part of the games that you're going out and exploring in, on different spots away from the main town, and some of those spots will have story bits on them that trigger a story, like an above and below. And in those spots, unless you completely fail your skill check on that story, those are just better than a spot without one because you get more things, you get more goods uh, when you go there. And so in a two-player game, if there's like one story space within two distance of the town, which is your starting speed, the first player is it's going to go two ways. Usually the first move is going for anyone is going to be hiring a person because it takes three uh, hearts to be able to place a camp on a spot. And the hearts are one of your resources. Everyone starts with two hearts available. So you can't explore immediately and place a camp, which is how you get the bulk of your resources. So you always want to try to hire someone first and then go exploring well, in a two-player game, if there's only one spot within you know, one movement segment, basically, the first player is going to hire and get to land that spot first. Now, the first player could avoid that by going there just for the mission and not camping there, which may be a counter to this. And that may be the way to go that we haven't been doing, but I don't know if that's valuable enough because then they're behind on the tempo overall, even though they're getting the goods from the story. But then again, they're they're not well equipped, so they may not even be able to hit the skill check that the story desires. So I'm, I'm not sure. I think there's probably an advantage to X number of players where X is the number of story books within two spaces of the town of players where we'll get that spot first. And I don't see how an easy way for the other players to kind of come to, to pursue an alternative strategy that, that counters that effectively, because it really is a game of tempo where the more good you get per exploration, the better people you can buy, which helps you explore better later on. I'm not sure. I'll, I got to play a couple more games to kind of figure that out, especially in the two-player game, but I am enjoying the game quite a bit. I just, it's not a masterpiece like I kind of hoped it would be. But I'll talk about more of that on the review uh, with Near and Far, which should be out within a couple of weeks. Uh, you may have noticed that I haven't been posting quite as frequently as before. I just had a, a rough couple of weeks with sleeping and, and trying to get motivated to write things. Um, so I'm hoping to, to catch back up and hopefully recording this podcast, you know, helps my thoughts, uh, helps spur some thoughts on, uh, the articles I'm planning to write. Also, I have been helping Orion make a board game table that we're working on. Uh, it's Orion's build, but I'm, I'm assisting and it's going to be awesome. It's going to be a budget it's kind of a budget build table. It's not quite as fancy as some of the ones we saw. Certainly not as fancy as some of the ones you can buy online for like $10,000 or whatever. But given that I think it's only costing a couple hundred dollars, it's going to be pretty sweet. Right now we have the legs built. We have the main table part built with its support structure on it. We are almost done with the rim of the table so it's going to be you know a table a board game table that's indented in the middle 
where there's a plain area and then around the edge there's a spot with cup holders and we're gonna have dice trays in there and then on one end one of the short ends we're gonna have a dm station that folds down into a little desk like area so we're almost we're probably halfway done with that part of the table and then we just need to attach that well next thing is we're gonna we're gonna nail the neoprene surface on the table and then attach the rim outside to that and we just have to stain the legs and that's about it so well we have to cut out the cup holders and all that but we can do that at any time so i'm really excited about this table i'm gonna or ryan's gonna put up a whole step-by-step -step with blueprints and everything of how he did it and how you can make one as well and kind of our experience of building this table because it's my first construction i know orion has done some stuff before but i i don't have a lot of construction experience so it was it's it's been interesting i'm pretty good with the circular saw i found out even though i've never used one before but we will have pictures and all that showing off the game table and then on saturday we're going to be breaking in the table with a game of twilight imperium a friend from connecticut's coming over and it's going to be awesome we have at least six people it's going to be either six or seven people which makes me very excited because i love the bigger games of twilight imperium and i can't wait we just played it only about a month ago, but I would love to get in a game once a month, even though that's probably unrealistic. But with the table, maybe it'll entice people to come over and sit at our awesome table. Now let's move on. I figure for this kind of casual podcast, I can spout some unsolicited opinions because that's what the internet seems to like and a good start to that was a reddit thread on our board games that i saw that was what are your unpopular board game opinions so let's look at some unpopular board game opinions and see why they are awful let's see here the main poster what does he say the original poster kickstarter board game campaigns predominantly have strayed from their original intention they used to be meant for small designers to get a game idea now it's used by large companies this is actually an opinion I see a lot and I don't get it. Kickstarter is a platform and maybe they advertise that it's for small time creators. I'm actually, I'm pretty sure they did. But as long as they're allowing bigger companies to use the platform, it's not by definition, it's not an abuse of the platform. Like Kickstarter could put up guidelines to, to stop larger companies from using that. And that would be fine, but they're not doing that. And I don't see how that abuses the platform. Maybe it annoys some people, but they don't have to pay attention to Simon's campaigns or any of these other bigger companies that use Kickstarter. You don't have to pay attention to that. It's fairly easy to search Kickstarter and find smaller publishers and like independent designers who are doing their board games. So if that's what you want to back, you can back it. It doesn't take anything away from you if some other company you don't care about gets you know five million dollars or something if you don't like dungeon crawlers that's perfectly fine and it doesn't hurt you that gloomhaven is raking in a fortune so i don't understand the criticisms of kickstarter to me it's a platform it's an option 
So if you don't like what Kickstarter is doing by allowing larger companies to use them, then just go to a different crowdsourcing or crowdfunding platform. Maybe that does have that. I don't, I don't get the complaints. Anyway, moving down. Eric Lang favors quantity over quality. He has a ton of crap. I haven't played enough Eric Lang games to know if he is favoring quantity over quality. In fact, I think the only one I've played is Blood Rage, and so far I'm not particularly impressed, but a lot of people seem to like it. I'm kind of interested in Rising Sun. After having kind of a disconnect with the larger board game community about Blood Rage, I'm being very cautious about Rising Sun. I like, in theory, that he's releasing a game that's somewhat similar but with more diplomacy, because that's one of my favorite things in games is uh, kind of creating these political situations between the players. But I didn't like Blood Rage very much. It's, It's okay. So, we'll see. I don't know if he's favoring quantity over quality. I I agree in this poster's other thing that Kickstarter-exclusive stuff kind of annoys me, especially when it's like 50% of the game or 50% of the content you get with the Kickstarter thing. It annoys me, but I'm not mad that they do it because it works, right? Why would I get mad at the company for doing that if that's how they're funding their games, like, it's just a good business model. If anything, get mad at the people who, who back all the giant miniature-laden games. But they like that. That's fine. It's like it's like the same thing with code names and um, all the different code names that are coming out now. You know, code names is a big hit for CGE, and they raked in, I'm sure, tons of money from code names. Why am I, why would I get mad that they're releasing like Marvel code names or Disney code names or whatever they're doing? To me, that just means they're subsidizing the next Vlada Euro game, right? That's not going to have as big of a profit. So to me, that just subsidizes a good company. And, you know, if Simon is able to release other games with not quite as many miniatures, like I heard Ethnos was very good. And that, if I remember correctly, doesn't really have any minis. If, you know, their latest miniatures game was able to kind of subsidize that production, I'm fine with it. All right, enough about Kickstarter. Let's see here. Star Wars Rebellion is a decent game, ruined by its combat system. This, I believe, is the same thing as the Shut Up and Sit Down critique. I don't think the combat system's that bad. It's fine. It's just a variation on the, you know, Axis and Allies role, and you get X number of hits, and based on the ship, and then the Defender... Oh no, the actually in, in Rebellion the attacker allocates. And then the defender can play cards. I don't know. It's I don't think it bogs the game down that much because you're not having that many combats, and it's pretty quick for me. I, I don't understand the combat criticism. I have other criticisms of the game, but it nothing's with the combat. I think it works fine. It's not particularly exciting, but it, it works. Pandemic Legacy was subpar and way too drawn out. Cheesy and predictable twists ruin the entire experience. Eh, I don't know. It's it's hard for me to say that certain twists were predictable, given that it was basically the first of its kind. So you don't know if it's it seems unbounded in terms of story, when at least for me, when I was going into it. So even though 
certain twists might have been predictable on a genre storytelling level. I don't know if that's a spoiler. It didn't bother me that much. I have other criticisms that I've talked about with Pandemic Legacy, but I think it was not too drawn out. I think it ended pretty much when it needed to. It it had a good rhythm to it of, of you'd play a couple games with a certain kind of framework, and then you'd something would happen, and you'd get a couple other games with a different framework. And so nothing seemed to really outstay its welcome with me. Scythe is a pretty game to look at that is completely forgettable from a gameplay perspective. Ah, I kind of agree with that. It's not forgettable. It has it has very, very solid gameplay, but not necessarily particularly exciting gameplay. It is very pretty to look at. What else? Okay, last one the OP presents. If you use the word grok, I judge you harshly and immediately. That I disagree with. I think grok is a cool word that has a very particular meaning in board gaming that you don't get with the word understand necessarily. It has a deeper, to me, it has a deeper implication than just understanding a game compared to when you grok a game. Maybe that's just me. All right, top post. Meeples suck and shouldn't be the mascot for gaming. I don't understand why you would have a strong opinion on meeples. They're fine. They're sturdy construction and represent people well. And then he says that Carcassonne is a bad game. Well, that person is wrong. Carcassonne is a great game, but that's some unpopular opinion, so I'm glad that that got put on the top. What else we have here? Winning is for losers, blah, blah, blah. He likes to have fun instead of winning. I think almost everyone agrees with that. Most gaming YouTube channels are cringeworthy and embarrassing. Eh, I don't, I don't agree with that. I don't know. I've seen a lot of poorly made YouTube game stuff, but it's not people who get views. So I think the market's fairly good at highlighting people who do quality things. And I can understand why people don't like the Dice Tower's humor. It's a particular style of humor. I find it funny occasionally. I think Shut Up and Sit Down is funnier, but I think they're trying to be funnier. So Dice Tower is great as a kind of an encyclopedic resource. And they can't do as high quality stuff as Shut Up and Sit Down because they release like 30 times more content. Right, they're releasing like two videos a day. And Shut Up and Sit Down is releasing, what, one video a week, I think? You can't compare the two. They have completely different goals. Okay, what's next? Dominion is not fun. Well, that's wrong. Dominion is very fun. If you straight up refuse to use BGG because you can't figure out how to navigate it, I don't trust your opinions on games. Yeah, maybe for like a reviewer. I don't know. I don't use certain parts of BGG because I can't figure out how to navigate it and I don't want to and I don't care to. So maybe he wouldn't trust me. Cosmic Encounter is basically Space Munchkin. Yes, but it's better Space Munchkin. But it is certainly not the best game ever. I don't hate Monopoly. Eh, Monopoly. It's not the worst game. Oh, this is interesting. The best social deduction game ever was invented 50 years ago, Murder in the Dark. Oh, that's the party game where you walk around and like wink at people or touch them on the shoulder. And then you have to figure out 
who was the murderer. I it, it's hard to logistically get that get that to work. Although I have tried, but it's not the best social deduction. It's not a social deduction. Well, I guess it is. What other unpopular opinions is Reddit going to give us? Aftermarket additions to games and custom tables are overrated. They're just board games. Play them to have fun and stop trying to prove you're the most hardcore player. I don't know. Cool things are cool. If you have the money, that's fine. I'm building a board game table. I don't have the money to buy one. Here we go. Pandemic is mind-numbingly boring by Game 3. The only variation from game to game comes from allowing people that don't know what they're doing to make poor decisions. I kind of agree with that. Pandemic is... Not Leacock's best game, as I've explained before. It is, in fact, of the games I've played, at least from Leacock, that his best game is Forbidden Desert. Because it does have more variation, and you can't quite as easily calculate how far you... You can't quite as easily calculate the end game, which is what I like. Even though in, that means, in some sense, it's a hair more random. I don't know. There, I think there are more points of randomness, so it's harder to understand how close you are to winning the game or not. Hey, Orion's back with table building supplies, so we can go build more of the table. What What is this opinion? Automator3000 says, playing soundtrack type music to enhance the play of a board game is weird. He should try that sometime because it's not weird, it's awesome. If you're playing War of the Ring, you have to put on the Lord of the Rings soundtrack or else we are playing the game wrong. Here we go. Someone loves Kickstarter campaigns. See, there's one person. Nothing wrong with that. Lords of Waterdeep is the most boring game I've ever played. It's... I played it once a long time ago, and I don't remember anything about it, so that probably says something. I do remember there are a lot of cubes, and you're trying to get different colored cubes. And I th remember thinking, why are they all cubes? Though now I may like that, because I do like cubes a lot. What else we have here? Someone likes the randomness in Catan. Eh, I don't think so. There's, there's nothing satisfying about the randomness in Catan. Unless you deliberately go to a less good position and then get lucky. Then you feel good and everyone else feels angry. If you go to a, if you play strategically well and the things work out fairly well for you, it doesn't feel great. Like, randomness should provide some kind of... If it's going to be dramatic like that, it should provide some kind of satisfaction, I think. And I don't think Catan does that very well. Uh, Fantasy Flight publishes extremely mediocre games. That's not true. They publish some of the best games ever. Here we go. Someone who's presumably named Brad thinks Castles of Burgundy looks quite nice. I think I'll end on that, because that is... Probably my unpopular board game opinion. I think Castle of Burgundy looks great and doesn't need an update or whatever. Although a lot of people disagree with me on that, but I guess that's why it's an unpopular opinion. All right, there we go for unsolicited opinions with me, which I guess could be a segment I could do on other podcasts. But I got, then I got to think of more unsolicited opinions without Reddit to prompt me. Okay, just toward the end of this, I just want to go over what's coming up for the Thoughtful Gamer. These are no longer unsolicited opinions. These are facts. Let's see here. What am I doing? I already talked about T Twilight Imperium this Saturday. I'll probably tweet some pictures, as I always do, of the table with Twilight Imperium on it. 
and it's going to look awesome. I'm going to do the near and far review soon. I want to get a couple more games to figure out this first player advantage thing. Uh, I've got to play Labyrinth the War on Terror a couple times, at least once more to get a first impression written on that because I promised Twitter I would because I put up a poll a long time ago and then haven't gotten around to playing Labyrinth, even though it is currently set up in the game room right now waiting to be played. Maybe Orion and I will play that tonight. What else? Oh, I got a bunch of, a lot more card-driven war games from GMT. I got 1960 in the mail last week, I think, which I've opened and looked at, and it looks really nice. It's actually probably my favorite cover of any GMT game uh, in, in terms of the box cover. And then Colonial Twilight, the first two-player coin game, will be here soon. I haven't gotten a shipping notification, but I think they said the beginning of July, so within the next couple of weeks. So Orion and I have a lot of card-driven games to play, which is good because I am planning to release an article talking about my kind of exploration into these types of games and then hopefully try to contact either one of the designers, you know, Volko or Mark Herman or someone at GMT because I want to do an interview about the history of war games, but not only war games, but card-driven games specifically and how the designs have changed and updated. So I'm hoping to do maybe like a whole week or a week and a half on just card-driven war games because I think they're, they're beautiful and fantastic. And they're all coming here at the same time, so that's fun. And then the big news, far in the future, moving out past immediate reviews and such, is that I will be having video content fairly soon, within a month or two probably. And I'm trying to figure out what I want to do. Because I don't want to, you know, with The Thoughtful Gamer, I want to stand out a bit in terms of what I'm releasing and I'm not going to be able to do video reviews as good as Shut Up and Sit Down. And I don't even want to try. Like, they have their own thing going, and that's great. And I don't want to overlap with them or try to compete in the same space. But what I'm thinking I can do, because the Thoughtful Gamer here, we're, we're, we're focusing more on kind of in-depth perspectives and things like strategy articles or game design articles, that I might do something that I'm tentatively calling strategic live plays where we record playing the game, but at the same time comment on the strategy and the design of the game as we play. So it won't be necessarily particularly competitive, especially on a game where we might have hidden information, but it should help people get kind of an understand of understanding of the feel of the game, how to play and what kind of strategic decisions are involved and maybe highlight some features of the design. So kind of a little bit of everything we do here at The Thoughtful Gamer, but in video form on top of it just being a live play of the game. Um, I'll look into that. Um, I also like teaching games, so I was thinking of, of doing something where, you know, just videos where I'm teaching the game, but I know there are at least there's at least... I know there's Watch It Played, which I've heard does an incredible job of teaching games. I don't know a lot about what's out there in terms of teaching board games because I don't like learning board games through video, but I know a lot of people do. I like doing it through reading rule books. 
But if I can, again, do something unique or at least cover games that haven't been covered before, I might do some of that. I also might be streaming soon on Twitch uh, of board game things on the digital realm. So Netrunner Online, Hearthstone. Uh, there's a game I've been playing on Steam called Age of Rivals that I want to talk about. And, uh, you know, maybe once a week or twice a week, do a little bit of streaming of, of some online uh, board game type things. Probably maybe do some Twilight Struggle as well, even though I'll just lose every time. And then eventually, very long term, by the end of the year, or I think my goal right now is by PAX Unplugged in November, I want to get on Patreon and start... Uh, seeing if people are willing to financially support me. I I think there'll probably be a, a few people, and I'm hoping there, there will be. I have gotten feedback that people really like the articles and the, and the podcast. So um, at some point, I want to make this kind of self, this, this project self-sustaining and actually pull in an income, you know, with uh, for, for the thoughtful gamer, you know, very long term. But at the very least, I'd like to have some money coming in so I can improve equipment, um, get better software, get better, you know, editing software for both audio and video and just improve the quality before, you know, while building up an audience. So look out for that. If you have, if you are on Patreon or, or have any tips about that kind of transition into monetizing, uh, let me know. Cause I'm not quite sure how I'm going to do it yet. But I do want to transition there before PAX Unplugged and hopefully meet some of you all at PAX Unplugged if you are going. I think that's it for today with my uh, dust side talks. Uh, if you enjoyed this kind of casual me rambling and ranting format, let me know. Or if you did not enjoy it, also let me know. Again, it's kind of a temporary solution while we are or while I am looking for another special or feature or something I can do on the off weeks like I did with the top uh, 50 games list. Oh, I forgot to mention very soon we are going to be running a an RPG campaign, so that's going to be, I'm going to record those sessions, and that will be put in the off weeks as well. I'll probably split them up a bit, so that'll give us uh, some, some stuff for the non-main podcast weeks we're going to be running the fantasy flight edge of the empire star wars system i just made my character he is going to be slightly based on if you've seen the movie children of men michael kane's kind of hippie character at least that was the visual uh inspiration in my mind for this person and I think it's going to be fun. I think it's going to be three of us. Matt is going to be the DM, and he has much more of a Star Wars knowledge than I do. So I think it'll be really good. I like this fantasy flight system, although I will say the Edge of the Empire book is probably 20 to 30% longer than it needs to be. Because whoever wrote this thing really liked to ramble and not get to the point. So that's been a bit annoying, but I think the system's really cool. It has a nice dice mechanism with a bunch of custom dice, which is always fun. But anyway, now I'm rambling too much. Please let me know what you think of this uh, desk side talk with Mark at The Thoughtful Gamer. Remember to check out the site at thethoughtfulgamer.com and please rate and review the podcast and check me out on Twitter or Facebook. 
We'll talk to you later. Bye.